Let's pray. Loving Father, please uh, open our ears and our hearts this morning as we dig into your word. Please help us uh, to have fresh joy uh, at the good news that Jesus brings forgiveness from sin. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, the morning after Sarah and I got engaged, we were calling our close friends and relatives um, with the news, conversations that were full of excitement, and, and Sarah called her grandmother. That was one of the, the calls she made. Grandma, I've got some good news. Nick and I are engaged. He proposed to me last night. I said yes. There was a slight pause. Oh, came the reply. Not quite what we were expecting. Um, now, in time, of course, she came round to me. Uh, <laughs> But I think she'd always had hopes for the tall, dark and handsome boy who lived around the corner uh, from Sarah. <laughs> when it comes to sharing good news, sometimes we don't quite get the responses that we're expecting. Uh, this morning we're going to spend some time reflecting on that passage that Justine just read for us, Acts chapter 13, where Luke, the author of Acts, describes some of the highlights of the Apostle Paul's first, the, the first half of his first missionary journey. And so we see Paul uh, and his co-worker Barnabas travel first to the island of Cyprus and then they head off to the town of Pisidian Antioch. And both times they see a range of responses to the good news that they brought, um, some of which are not quite what you would expect, um, especially from people who were meant to know God and know his promises. Generally, and I'm generalising here, uh, we see in both of those places... Jewish rejection and Gentile appreciation of the gospel. And now as we go through this, a, a real challenge that this passage puts to us, I think, is how do we respond to the Christian message, this good news about Jesus? And I'm not just talking about are you a Christian or not? Do you believe the message or not? Although, of course, that is a critical first question that you need to answer. No, I'm talking about how do you live day by day? Is the gospel good news to you? Uh, does it excite you and gladden you? Is it something that you consciously live in light of? Um, I personally found this passage this week particularly challenging as I've prepared. Uh, in the busyness of life, I think it's just so easy for us to lose sight uh, of the goodness of the gospel, for the gospel to lose its luster and to become neither good nor news. It just kind of slips into the background. It kind of becomes like the Australian Constitution. Um, we know it's important. We'll support its defence if it's attacked. But it doesn't really bear on my daily existence. Well, hopefully this passage will awaken us from that and we'll get a new sense of delight in the gospel. Uh, it'd be good to have your Bibles open. This is, I mean, they're all Bible open sermons, but particularly this one this morning as um, we work through it and as I refer to different bits. Well, the first uh, section of the passage describes the situation that resulted in the commissioning of Saul and Barnabas, he's called Saul, still at this, page of the, this stage of the narrative, um, for their first missionary journey. 1225 um, reports their return from Jerusalem. You might remember they'd been in Jerusalem delivering some famine aid. They've come back to the church at Antioch, which is a church that Chapter 11 tells us they had spent a year there uh, teaching um, and uh, teaching and preaching too. 
And by the end of chapter 3, the church has sent them off again, this time on a gospel-sharing mission among the Gentiles. And the key thing to notice here is that the work that they are being sent off to do is God's work. Now, we've seen this before in Acts, and we're going to keep um, seeing it, that it's God who is, is the one directing and driving his mission forward. So in verse 2, it says, While they, um, that's the leadership team of the church there uh, in Antioch, while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, how exactly the Holy Spirit said this, it doesn't say. But given that verse 1 has just told us that there were prophets among the leadership team there at Antioch, um, I'm willing to, uh, to guess that uh, probably one of the prophets um, spoke this word. But however these words were conveyed, what we can be certain of is that since it comes from the Holy Spirit, the work they're about to embark on is God's work. Now, what's more, the fact that the Spirit says it's the work to which I have called them, I think emphasises this point even further. Jesus declared Saul at his conversion to be my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. And at the start of the book of Acts, um, Acts 1.8, you might remember Jesus told the disciples um, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, now here God presses the go button on that work, that mission of taking the gospel to the Gentiles and to the ends of the earth in earnest. And so again in Acts, we're reminded here that we humans, we're merely instruments in the Lord's hands when it comes to the proclamation of the message. Though none of us have Paul's specific commission to take the gospel to a particular field, all believers are commissioned to make disciples, to fish for people sharing the good news with whoever it is that God puts in front of us. But as we do so, don't you reckon it's a load off to know that the success or, or failure of this mission isn't up to us? It's, it doesn't come down to our efforts. It's God uh, who's in control and in charge here. It's kind of like when I let my kids um, help me at the barbecue. Um, I might give them the tongs. You know, they might turn a few of the sausages, but in the end, I'm the one who is making sure that each sausage is put properly cooked and my family is properly fed. Um, well, the first stop in their missionary journey is the island of Cyprus. Um, Cyprus, a uh, largish island in the Mediterranean, about 200 kilometres off the coast um, from near Antioch, um, the port uh, that they had left from. And in verses 4 to 12, Luke describes their time there and it's here that we see the first instance of Jewish rejection and Gentile appreciation of the gospel. So Barnabas and Saul, they arrive on the island, they embark on a preaching tour, but it's the events at Paphos on the other side of the island that Luke focuses on here. There they meet the Roman proconsul. They present the gospel to him. The proconsul's like the governor of the province. Um, he's a guy named Sergius Paulus, and he actually invited them to come and speak. And by the time we're finished in this section, he has become a believer. In fact, he is the first believer, the first Gentile believer recorded in the book of Acts, who wasn't already a worshipper of the Jewish God. He wasn't already a God-fearer attached to a particular synagogue. But before that happens, before his conversion, Paul, so he's now started to use his 
Roman name because he's um, on a mission to the Gentiles, Paul has to deal with opposition to the gospel from a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet, a guy who goes by the name of Bar-Jesus or Elymas. Uh, Elymas, he's an advisor to the proconsul, and when he hears that Paul's coming, and when he hears Paul's preaching, well, he attempts to stop him. He attempts to stop the proconsul coming to faith. Um, Paul, he's not going to have a bar of it, though. Um, filled with the Holy Spirit, the passage says, he's up to the challenge. He calls Elymas out for his wickedness, and he causes him to go temporarily blind. He calls down God's judgment on him. Now, there are a few things we're meant to notice from this first episode um, here at Cyprus. And firstly, there's the perversion of Elymas. As a Jew, he's meant to be one of God's people. He's meant to love and treasure God's word. But instead, he rejects the word. He does it in two ways. Firstly, by his sorcery, which is clearly prohibited in the Old Testament, but also by his opposing Paul's preaching. Um, presumably, his opposition to the gospel is motivated by a desire not to lose the position of influence that he has with the proconsul. So in Elymas, we get a taste here of the Jewish rejection that is going to grow and grow through the rest of the book of Acts. Uh, secondly, uh, here at Cyprus, there's a clear reminder of Jesus' triumph over dark and demonic spiritual forces. Now, while the passage doesn't say that Elymas was demon-possessed, it's clear that his sorcery allied him with anti-God spiritual forces. A child of the devil, Paul calls him. And merely by speaking, Paul, in the power of the Holy Spirit, calls God's judgment on him and consigns him to blindness. Um, such a clear victory like that, just by speaking, it's a, it's a scene reminiscent of Jesus commanding evil spirits to come out of people, isn't it? Um, or perhaps Peter's confrontation with uh, Simeon, the magician, in Acts chapter 8. And the point is that if you are with Jesus, then you need not fear any of these anti-God spiritual forces. Uh, even here in the West, uh, where the idea of the spiritual realm and the devil is often laughed at in public, in private, many people still live in fear. But if you're with Jesus, if you trust him, then you don't have to live in that fear. He has already triumphed. Uh, third thing to notice is the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, his reaction to the events. Verse 12, uh, it says, When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. He had sent for Saul and Barnabas because he wanted to hear their teaching. And now he believes it. In fact, he doesn't just believe it, he was amazed by it. Um, have a look again at verse 12. See how he's amazed not by the blinding of Elymas, spectacular as that may have been, but by, what does it say there? The teaching about the Lord. Now, We'll get an insight in a moment into the actual content of that teaching. But there's no doubt that Luke here is commending this response to us and, and contrasting it with Elymas, who had tried to shut Paul down. So there's belief and amazement. Here's a man hearing the gospel for the first time with fresh ears, and it's unlike anything that he has ever heard before. You know, he's, he's heard a, and he's witnessed the sorcery of Elymas, you know, magical deeds. He's likely heard stories of the Roman gods 
and the Greek philosophers, um, their wisdom. But what is it that blows him away? It's the gospel. Now, when was the last time you appreciated the gospel with, with fresh enough eyes that it just blew your mind? Because the gospel of Jesus is wonderful, mind-blowing news. And it's a great tragedy that all too often our familiarity with it breeds not quite contempt, but complacency, perhaps. Well, having preached the gospel in Cyprus, the next major stop for Paul and Barnabas is Pisidian Antioch. We shouldn't be confused, by the way, with the Antioch that he had come from. That was in Syria. Um, this is uh, Pisidian Antioch is uh, in modern-day south-central Turkey. Uh, it was the Roman capital of the province there, and it also had quite a substantial Jewish population. So you can see why it was such a strategic place for Saul and Barnabas to start uh, preaching there. Uh, and it's there that we see the second episode of Jewish gospel rejection and Gentile gospel appreciation as the Jews in the synagogue reject the message and the, Paul then turns to the local Gentiles. Now, in the whole scheme of the book of Acts, what goes on here at Pisidian Antioch is extremely significant. Uh, see, uh, as Paul fulfills his commission to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles, the particular pattern of his ministry that he will um, keep on following is established here. What he'll do is he'll go to a town, he'll first go to the synagogue and he'll preach there to the Jews. Some will believe, some won't. And many of those that don't will turn against him, often with anger and violence. But then, having been rejected by the Jews, Paul will turn to the Gentiles uh, to take the gospel message to them in that particular town. Now, that's the general pattern. And you see it more and more in places like Iconium, Philippi, Thessalonica, uh, and so on. And because it's here at Pisidian Antioch where that pattern is first established, it's only here that we actually get the essential details of what Paul preaches uh, in that synagogue. This is the one record of the Apostle Paul's model gospel sermon that he gives in the synagogue. Um, the sermon that caused Sergius Paulus, uh, the, the same gospel rather, that caused Sergius Paulus such amazement. And what's more, it's only here, um, at least only here in the book of Acts, that we get Paul's theological rationale for this first to the Jew, then to the Gentile pattern. And so let's reflect for a moment on, the gospel, on that model gospel sermon of Paul's. Um, it's there in verses 16 to 41 of chapter 13. And the big theme of this sermon is that Jesus is the Messiah who brings forgiveness to all who believe. That's Paul's gospel in a nutshell. Jesus uh, is the Messiah who brings forgiveness of sins to all who believe. And the sermon pretty much falls into three parts. You've got foundation, fulfilment, and then the offer of forgiveness. So part one, foundation. It's there in verses 16 to 22. Uh, and there Paul gives a brief Bible overview, tracing the history of God's dealing with Israel uh, right up to the time of King David. Now everything that's said in the first part of the sermon here, uh, in the Jewish synagogue, the congregation would have been nodding along with in agreement. Uh, and so there's a rapport that Paul would have established with his listeners. But there's also much more going on here as Paul lays this foundation. He's also reminding them that in all his dealings with Israel, God has always been the main actor. He is the one with total control. 
over the events. So, so God is always the subject of the verbs um, through this paragraph. Uh, see how he says it's God who chose the ancestors, God who made the people prosper, God who overthrew the nations, and so on. And this is important because in a moment, Paul's going to show that the coming of Jesus, well, that's part of God's sovereign plan as well in fulfillment of these events. Now, what's more, as Paul lays the foundation, he also wants to emphasize the kingship of David. Um, do you see how, as he gets to David, so this is in verse 22, um, he starts to slow down and he adds a little bit of information. He zipped through the first bit because he wants to get here to David. So verse 22, after removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Now, the reason why this is important is because he's about to go on to show how Jesus is the greater David. He's in the line of David, the promised Messiah, who would reign on David's throne forever. And so with that foundation laid, part two of the sermon is all about fulfilment, showing how Jesus is the promised Messiah, the one in David's line who would bring salvation to God's people. Now, verse 23, if you have a look at that, it's the headline of this section. It says, From this man's descendants, God has, promised, has brought to Israel the Saviour Jesus, just as he has promised. And then on Paul goes, striking the note of fulfilment, fulfilment, fulfilment. For starters, there's the fulfilment that came with Jesus' death. So see what verse 27 says about that, um, about how Jesus' death sentence fulfilled the words of the prophets. Uh, and then in verse 9, 29, it says that, um, that when they crucified him, they carried out all that was written about him. Now, probably Paul's got in mind here the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, um, which show for us that the path of God's Messiah to the throne is a path of suffering. Uh, probably also Isaiah 53 is in his mind. You know, the, suffer, the description of the suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions. Now then beyond his crucifixion, there's the fulfilment that comes with the resurrection. Uh, we tell you the good news, Paul says in verse 32. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Paul then takes three Old Testament quotations and applies them to Jesus, each to explain the nature of this fulfilment. Now, the first one there is from Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my son. Today I've become your father. He's saying it's through the resurrection that Jesus takes the place that had been prepared for him on the eternal throne of God. Um, he's the son of God who would be God's agent in crushing the rebellious nations, right? That's what Psalm 2 is all about. And then Paul quotes Isaiah 55, 3, where God says, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. In other, word, in other words, it's through the resurrection that God's people are given the blessings of an everlasting king who then graciously shares all these blessings with his people. And then finally, Paul quotes from Psalm 16, 10, where David says, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Now, now, this one's really the clincher in Paul's argument there in the synagogue. He's saying the resurrection of Jesus, well, it shows that death no longer has any hold on him. Unlike David, unlike any other king, he is alive 
and he still rules on his throne today. So there's the dynamic. Um, the first two sections of the sermon. Uh, promise, fulfilment. Promise, fulfilment. And so Jesus, he's not just this wise teacher or this charismatic leader who is sort of dropped down in the middle of history and a personality cult has formed around him. No, there's this whole historical backstory that he comes and fulfills as he takes his place on God's eternal throne. He's, he's the climax of God's dealings with humanity. And so we need to be careful that this is the Jesus we follow too. Right? Not just some caricature or, or someone that we've kind of cooked up in our heads because that's how we would like him to be. And it's why as Christians we need to value our Old Testaments. If we want to see Jesus in all his glory, right, if we want to really know Jesus, then we need to know the promises that he has fulfilled, the expectations that he has met and exceeded. But Paul doesn't end his sermon there. He's proven that Jesus is the Messiah, the eternal king who saves. But then the third part of the sermon is the offer that goes with it as well. See, while Jesus' audience in the synagogue may have been expecting a Jewish Messiah who would save the Jewish nation, nation from foreign military powers or something like that, what Paul shows here in this last section is that the salvation that Jesus brings is far greater and far richer than that. It's salvation from the root cause of everything that is wrong with this world. Salvation from sin. Uh, verse 38. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So Paul's effectively saying, forget Roman rule. You know, do you think they're still going to be around in 2,000 years' time? But the all-too-human desire to ignore God, to reject him and replace him with ourselves that, path, that, that paves the path to eternal condemnation in hell, well, that is worth being saved from. And how do you take hold of this salvation? Well, it simply comes, Paul says in verse 39, to everyone who believes. No more doing, doing, doing as there had been under the law of Moses. You know, sacrifices, food laws, circumcision, Sabbaths. No more of that. It's simply about belief. Putting your trust in Jesus. See, in the end, at the heart of the gospel is forgiveness of sins through faith in the Messiah, Jesus. Right? That's the offer here, the offer of forgiveness. Now, is that your gospel? Is forgiveness of sins through Jesus at the heart of what you believe and how you live day by day? Do you come to the Lord knowing that I am freely forgiven, so I am right with him, and I can live free of that burden of guilt because of Jesus' death for me? And what's more, I can look forward to eternal joy, the joy of eternity with him. Because in every generation, that message at the heart of the gospel is threatened. Bits are knocked off. Bits can be added. Uh, there's a lot of talk at the moment in certain circles about cultural transformation, that the gospel is all about Christians doing good in the world and bringing justice and mercy. Now, don't get me wrong, that may be a consequence of the gospel, 
But we're getting confused if we say that that is the gospel. Or there's the gospel of self-improvement, where the message is fundamentally about stepping out in faith. Uh, You may have heard that kind of gospel. Believe it and you will achieve it. Now, Paul would have hardly recognised that gospel. Um, It's a gospel that's all about faith in self. When we say step out in faith, normally people are talking about uh, believing that you can do it, faith in self. Now, here it is with crystal clarity, the climax of his model gospel sermon, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Well, back there in Pisidian Antioch, how did they respond to Paul's message? At first, it seems to have gone down pretty well. So verses 42 and 43, they tell us how um, they were keen to hear Paul speak again the following week and how the conversation continued with Paul and Barnabas um, after the, the congregation had been dismissed. But then come the next Saturday, everything changes. The Jews, or at least uh, the Jewish leaders, see that the whole city has gathered to hear Paul and it's just too much for them. They become jealous. It seems that those in the Jewish community who held the power couldn't possibly fathom the possibility of losing it. And so they turned against Paul, loudly and angrily. So it's at this point that Paul declares his intention, now I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And it's here also that we get the theological rationale for why Paul does this, why this is his pattern. In verse 47, Paul says, For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. He's quoting here from the second half of Isaiah 49.6, and he's applying it to himself inasmuch as he is the apostle to the Gentiles. But there's no doubt that he also intended his audience to imply here the first half of Isaiah 49.6, which speaks of a servant of the Lord restoring the tribes of Israel before salvation is then brought to the ends of the earth. The point is, Paul's pattern of going first to the Jew and then to the Gentile was not just pragmatic, as if the Jews were the low-hanging fruit of gospel mission. No, it was because of it was because of God's it, no, it was because it was God's intention that the Jews, as the initial recipients of God's promises, would first have the opportunity to hear about the fulfilment of those promises. That's why he goes first to the Jews. And so as Paul arrives in town by town to preach the gospel afresh, that's what he does, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Now the question is, is this still the case today? Is there a priority to take the gospel to the Jews? Well, though some evangelical Christians might say, yes, I'm not convinced um, about this. Uh, Sure, God might put it specially on the heart of some Christians to preach the gospel um, to people who are ethnically Jewish. Uh, And sure, I might take the gospel to them in a different way to the way I evangelize others. You know, I might reason from the Old Testament, for example. Uh, But those things are different from what's going on here, from from this God-ordained priority that Paul is speaking about in his mission. See, Paul was ministering at a historical turning point in God's dealings with humanity. With the coming of the new covenant, a huge shift had taken place where God's invitation was now for all. Um, But for that to happen, first God's old covenant people had to hear. 
The New Testament, I think, describes the fulfilment of that priority as the gospel is preached first in Jerusalem and then to the Jews in the diaspora, in the synagogues. And so in terms of mission today, I don't think it matters whether you're Jewish or Irish or Vietnamese, everyone needs to hear the gospel. And the priority is whoever God puts in front of you at the time. Well, I want to conclude then with the response of the Gentiles at Pisidian Antioch. Verse 48. It says, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and they honoured the word of the Lord. As with Sergius Paulus at Cyprus, there was deep appreciation for the gospel. Through faith in Jesus, forgiveness of sins could now be theirs. So I think the question for us is, when was the last time you appreciated the gospel as good news, honouring it, being amazed by it? You know, of all the times you've told someone, I've got good news. Uh, how many times was the gospel the thing that came next? And many of us have been Christians for years, if not decades. And the danger, as I said before, is that we can grow too comfortable with the gospel. Well, let's remember the joy of the Gentiles in our passage today, their delight in the gospel. You know, uh, since um, we've had kids, I found myself appreciating afresh all sorts of things that had grown dim. You know, just the, the fun of throwing a ball in the backyard, uh, the delight of sitting and watching a spider slowly weaving its web, um, watching the power of waves smash into a headland one after the other, you know, seeing their amazement um, at the power that God has, has installed in his creation. Well, that's what the joy of these Gentiles is meant to do for us as we look at this passage this morning. And so let's pray now that we would equally have their delight to know the forgiveness of sins in Jesus and to share it with others. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do thank you for this wonderful news of forgiveness of sins in Jesus that comes to all who believe. Um, Lord, we, uh, we know this news often uh, in our heads, but we pray that you would reawaken us to the joy um, that this is, um, to the fact that it breaks down those barriers uh, to you, to the fact that it opens uh, the doors uh, to eternal life, um, and that even in our lives now it just um, relieves the burden of guilt uh, that many of us otherwise feel. And please give us the delight of the Gentiles. Please help us to be amazed and to honour the word of the Lord um, and to desire to share this good news with others as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.